Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Podcast edition number 31 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. I'm Jerry Bunkowski along with Ben White, and we have lots to talk about today, particularly as we get ready for the start of round two of the NASCAR Cup playoffs this weekend in Las Vegas. As most of you know, Eric El Morello, 2004 Cup champ Kurt Busch, Tyler Reddick, and defending Daytona 500 winner Michael McDowell will, were all eliminated from the playoffs after this past Saturday night's race at Bristol Motor Speedway. That leaves 12 drivers left to fight it out over the next three rounds before NASCAR crowns its 2021 Cup champion. Ben, it's great to be paired with you, and I look forward to working with you every week here on A Lifetime in NASCAR. As usual, you've come up with a number of great ideas for us to talk about, and we're going to get to those shortly. But first, I wanted to get your take on Saturday night's race at Bristol. I mean, the, the whole Kyle Larson machine kept rolling. He's got his season-leading sixth win, uh, but... Almost equally as important was the late race incident between Chase Elliott and Kevin Harvick, where Harvick got into Elliott's car, cutting down a tire, and basically cost Elliott the win. But things didn't really end on the racetrack. Uh, Elliott confronted Harvick on pit road after the race. Words were definitely exchanged. Ben, first of all, your thoughts on the race as a whole and Larson's win, and then let's get your take on the Harvick-Elliott dust-up. I'll tell you what, Jerry, you know, it was another Bristol Motor Speedway uh, typical race there. I mean, anytime you go to Bristol, it's it's one of those deals to where you know you're going to get action at the, on the racetrack, no doubt about it. It's one of those closed, tight racetracks that no matter where you look, you're going to see something. And what I was impressed about, at least in the last, say, 25, 30 laps, you could watch the race from the start of, I mean, from the from the point, but you could also look at what was going on back as far as the drivers trying to get in, you know, make that transition into the top 12. And I mean, I was having trouble. See, I was watching the front. It's like, man, there was so much to see, you know, trying to see all those guys uh, trying to fight their way into that, that, that advancing position. But yeah, Bristol is just such a neat racetrack. I, I remember stories. People would tell me uh, how, you know, they would, <laughs> they, they go to divorce court and they say, you know, keep keep the land, keep the pickup truck, keep whatever you want to keep, but I got to get my Bristol ticket. <laughs> right. but, so that was actually the truth. They say so they they give up the farm and and the house and and and, and everything, but it's like you got to give me my Bristol ticket. I guess that's still possible. We're still part of the deal, but uh, and and it was a great. I thought it's a good race, and you know, it's it was. I knew I felt like going into this race being one of those races that it's going, you're going to advance into the next round. Something had to happen but between somebody. 
And, you know, it's not the first rodeo for Kevin Harvick. You remember mm -hmm. looking back when he had his, you know, his scuffles with uh, Ricky Rudd, I believe, one year there, and then Greg Biffle one year there, uh, you know, where they were, you know, nose to nose, jumping race cars to get to each other. I remember that was one of those deals were with Kevin. But, yeah, it just happened to be Chase Elliott this time and, uh, you know, uh, got into either Kevin got into Chase or Chase got into Kevin. That's debatable. But at the end of the day, here comes the parking on pit road and they get out and they're nose to nose again. So yeah, it's, it's two, two trains of thought depends on who you like the most, whether it be Elliot or, or Kevin and, and we go from there. So I, I got to ask you two quick follow-up questions. Number one, Kyle Larson wins number six. Are you, at this point, we've got seven races left to go, but are you at this point saying he's the guy, he's going to win it unless something totally unexpected happens in one of the rounds? I mean, in your mind, is he the guy that's going to probably be the champion at the end of the season? I'm sort of thinking that way. And, and we've talked about this on the show before. And, and there's just one word that, that continually comes to my mind, and that's chemistry, chemistry, chemistry. He and Cliff Daniels have just clicked you know, Jimmy Johnson and Cliff Daniels were together, and for whatever reason, it didn't click with them. A lot of respect between driver and crew chief with, with Jimmy and Cliff, but it just didn't come together. With Kyle and Cliff Daniels, it's there. And, you know, I've heard other people say, too, that, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to the people that at Ganassi Racing that, that Kyle Larson was with, but they you know, something that wasn't clicking there, whether it be engineering, whether it be cars, whether it be crew chief, whatever it was, mm -hmm. because the winds weren't coming together there like they are at Hendrick Motorsports. But he goes over across the street, so to speak, or across town, I guess you, sh you could say. And then, boom, all of a sudden, uh, they're winning races. They're up to six wins. And I could probably name you, and you could too, you could probably come up with maybe four or five more this year. Pocono for one, that if he just uh, had a better tire on the right front and maybe half a lap, we'd be looking at seven wins there. Uh, you know, and, and I could probably, if I really thought about it, two or three more wins, he could be up to the 10 mark now. Right. So, yeah, to answer your question, there's something magical there that, that he's a good candidate to, no matter where he goes for the rest of the year, he's, he's, he's a favorite. And to win the championship, he's certainly a favorite. There is just something really magical between himself, the crew chief, and Cliff Daniels. Like I say, in that crew, you know, you see that happen about every 10 years or so. You saw it with Jeff Gordon and Ray Evernham. You saw it with Chad Knauss and Jimmy Johnson. It, it's just something there. You could throw millions of dollars at these race, race cars. You could see it with, uh, you know, race team owners and drivers you could throw all the money in the world but at the cars but if the driver and the team owner and the crew chief aren't getting along you're not going to see it and, exactly uh, yeah so that's what you're seeing with kyle larson he's you know unless he gets uh gets his toe run over by a bus or <laughs> you know if he falls out of bed wrong or something you know it, he's going to be our champion i think this year you know the Let's talk on the flip side, though. The guy that has, I'm not even saying surprise. It's shocked me, and I think it's shocked a lot of people. Kevin Harvick, he leads the series last year, nine wins, still has yet to get one this season. Now, that being said, I think that you know, looking at the seven races that we have left in the schedule, 
two tracks in particular come to my mind that he has probably the best chance of winning at. One is Las Vegas this weekend. He almost is. He's almost in a must-win situation in this round. I mean, he he just barely snuck into the round of twelve. Now, I mean, he he had a decent run at Bristol, which obviously helped him, you know, get him to get him to the um, to the to the second round. But you know, Las Vegas, it's almost to me he has to win there. The other track, if he doesn't get to that point, it's going to be a moot point. Is uh, Phoenix? I mean, he does very well at Phoenix. But he's got to get to the championship round to get there and to potentially win. So, what's what's been going on with Kevin Harvick this year? Why do you think he's he's struggled? I mean, there really has not been any significant changes. Although I will say this though, you know, there's kind of a, a, a school of thought that as Kevin goes, so does Stuart Haas, and Stuart Haas is has really struggled this year as a whole. I mean, you know, look at Cole Custer. I mean, had a great year last year. He, we haven't even heard from him this year. Um, you know, you've got uh, Eric Almorello. Yeah, he made the playoffs, but, you know, he's out already. Um, you know, you've, you've got Kevin and, you know, where he's at right now. What's, what's, what are your thoughts about what's, what's happened to him this year? I mean, and can, he, can he still resurrect the old Kevin to potentially still steal the championship away from a, a guy like a Kyle Larson? That's a really good question, Jerry. And, I, and you know, and the thing that I, I want to go back to is this and, and being the show is a lifetime in NASCAR. You know, there was a time in the eighties and nineties where you get a, say a crew member who could discover something with a race team mm-hmm. and you could go across the street and say, Hey, if you'll hire me, I'll tell you what it is. Right. Right. So, okay, we'll hire you and that. And they would come back and, and they would start winning races and they would find something inside, say a chassis or a body or whatever engine, whatever the case may be. We're in an era now where I think teams are struggling to find that missing ingredient. And that, the reason I say that is so close in competitively among all the race teams, there's really no more secrets to find, mm-hmm. if you will. So to answer your question, I don't think... Uh, You know, obviously, Kevin is on top of his game. He always has been. I I really don't think Kevin's lost anything. I don't think the team at Stuart Haas Racing's lost anything. I think, to answer your question in a long-winded way, I think they're they're just a tick off, and they're not – they don't know where that tick off is. You follow what I'm saying? In other words – Everything among all these race teams, even way back in the field, there it is so, so, so competitive in 2021. If you're slightly off, you're not winning races. I mean, slightly, slightly off. And there's no more secrets to be found anymore, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And so what, in comparison to Kyle Larson, I, I think what the, the common denominator is Kyle himself. In other words, he's a seat of the pants sort of driver. I'm not taking anything away from Kevin. It's just, there's a little bit more there in Kyle. And he's, again, I go back to communication, I guess, and chemistry, I guess, even though uh, Rodney Childers, we just saw where he signed a multi-year deal to stay with, with Stuart Haas and he'll be with Kevin and Kevin, I guess, decides not to be there any longer, but I don't think Kevin's really lost anything. I don't think the team's really lost anything. They're just a tick off somewhere. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's so hard to find that little thing that is missing in any of these race teams, whether you go to Jack Roush or whether you go to Penske or whether you go to to say Stuart Haas or Childress or any of them. It is so, so, so competitive anymore. There's nothing else to be found, I don't think. Because right. you've got a ton of engineers who are at your side trying to find that one missing ingredient. Back in the 80s and 90s, uh, you could you could go back and you could find something that was significant. And it wasn't necessarily an engineering thing. It was something that, you know, the Harry Hydes and the Buddy Parrots and those guys, they could... They were the very best at finding that thing. The, the shade tree mechanics could could do so much more than the engineers in Detroit could. And it was it was they would measure the the toe in toe out with string. Right. Know, they, would, they would line them up with the center of the the hub from hub to hub. You know what I'm saying? And they would do that kind of thing and make the engineers scratch their heads. Well, the now we it's almost a world of if you don't have an engineering degree. Then you're maybe not on a race team. Yeah, follow me exactly. So, so I know that's an extremely long-winded way of answering your question, but in my opinion, I don't think they're lot. They've lost anything. They're just looking for that one missing ingredient, and uh, it's almost like the cake that they're trying to bake has got everything except that one little baking powder, and they don't <laughs> have it. <laughs> I like that analogy. I love that analogy. Yeah, they just need that one little spoon of baking powder, and they don't seem to have it. And uh, yeah, so they're 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 trying to find it. They're they're winning. They're a winning race team. They're just a little. They're to, just to take off, and they're trying to find it. Right. You know, uh, before we get into the you know the life in NASCAR, uh, lifetime in NASCAR, I wanted to ask you this about Vegas, though. Historically, as we get to the third, the fourth, the fifth race of the playoffs, it's almost been like this every single year. We're going, this is the fourth race, obviously, of the 10 race playoffs. You see guys that have not had a good year that rise to the top unexpectedly. And Vegas, because it's a 1.5-mile track, I think that yeah, we're all going to be looking at the 12 guys who are still going for the championship. But I think, and this is just my opinion, but I've, you know, again, this goes back to what I've seen almost year after year after year around this time of the playoffs. You, I think a case can be made that a lot of the guys who've had difficult seasons this year, I mean, you know, we're talking about like an Eric Jones and Matt Benedetto. Okay, both of them finished in the top 10 at Bristol, but, you know, let's, let's face it, their, their seasons have been very rough. Uh, guys like Bubba Wallace, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., uh, Daniel Suarez, Cole Custer, Ryan Newman. Could somebody of that ilk among the names I mentioned, or even some guys that you know I haven't mentioned, can they rise to the top and maybe steal some thunder away from the 12 playoff guys because Vegas is such a um, an equalizing track, if you will, in my opinion. I mean, you know, anytime you're on a 1.5-mile track, Everybody's pretty much the same. They all have the same thing. It's when you start going into, you know, road courses or short tracks or, you know, uh, a Talladega, for example, which is next week. Could this be a week where a lot of the 12 guys that are still in it kind of get overshadowed by somebody who comes out of nowhere and winds up winning? Yes, and I can tell you exactly why that could be. A lot of times when you have a race team that is – wanting so desperately to be in the championship hunt and they get out of the championship hunt because they don't have enough points and they're eliminated 
you you sort of they all take a collective breath and say ah we're out okay and then and then that that uh aura that comes over the race teams like we're out let's just go have some fun and when they go out and have some fun they start winning races exactly i've seen that so many times where a race team um they're just so amped up and so fired up and so it's almost like they can't get it out of their own way until they finally just take a breath and just slow down to go faster if you know what i mean when i, right. when I say that and suddenly they're like, we see this a lot of times, Jerry, when a, when a driver knows that he's not going to be with a race team next year and he's been told that he's not going to come back and then he starts winning races. Well, yeah. well, why is that? It's because like he just don't give a flip. It's like, okay, well, you don't want me anymore, so I'm just not going to try so hard. And when they don't try so hard, they start winning races. Exactly right. It's like, well, what's up with that? Right, right. So, so they they were like, well, how, how did you win knowing that you're not going to be with the team? And they're like, well, I don't know, but we now we're starting to win, but it's too bad because I, suddenly we're starting to click, but I'm not going to be with the race team next year. And I've seen, we've both seen that happen before. Exactly. And so Yeah. So to answer your question, you might very well see a Ryan Newman win at Vegas or say someone that's... Uh, that's not in that championship hunt. And they're like, well, crap, I wish this had come together, you know, earlier in the season that we could have gotten a win and gotten an invitation into the, into the championship hunt. But it's because that pressure is not there anymore to win because that's all they hear. Win, win, win. We're going to get in, win. And they, they just can't, they can't put it together until they don't have to win. And then they, they end up doing that. So you're right. There could be a face outside of that uh, bubble that, might enjoy having a victory there at Vegas or maybe one of the other tracks we go to this year. Well, you know, in, in the way I kind of handicap this, if you will, is Vegas is almost, to me, the last track where a non-playoff guy has a decent chance. Because once you get past race number five, which in this case will be Talladega next week, you've got the Roval the following week, and then you've got the four final races going into the championship. Um, the the odds of a non-playoff guy winning in the last four, well, Talladega or the Roval, and then the last four get very, very slim after Vegas. So I think that, you know, this could be the last chance that anybody who's had a a difficult season can get at least something that they can brag about saying, Hey, well, we won Vegas. Yeah. Our season, the rest of the season wasn't that great, but Hey, we won Vegas, you know? So, uh, that, that's something I think that, you know, it, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, Ben, you know, this is obviously called a lifetime in NASCAR. You are one of the best historians in the game. I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, we, we talked earlier about the dust up between, Harvick and Chase Elliott after Bristol, uh, right, you know, in the Bristol event, you know, with the Bristol situation, the, the incident they had, and then of course the on the uh, on the uh, in the pit uh, in the on pit road when you know after the race, but you know, there's a, been a lot of races over the years where two very big name drivers will go at it, and sometimes it's actually a surprise because a lot of times they're good buddies. I mean, you know. We saw Earnhardt, you know, he was buddies with Terry Labonte, but boy, you know, at Bristol or places like that, forget it. There was no, there was no friendship there. But you, you, you know, in one of the things we were talking about before the show, and I wanted to bring this up, you mentioned about, 
the October 1st, 1972 race at North Wilkesboro, when Bobby Allison and Richard Petty got into it, you know, late in the race, I mean, they were, you know, they were hit banging off each other and that kind of thing. Petty winds up winning it. And then the fans kind of erupted in, in victory lane. As you said, it was a wild afternoon. You know, that, that's, that race is one of the, the classic races in NASCAR history. I mean, you know, a lot of the younger fans may not even been around the, then, but you you can certainly see the uh, the you know the highlights on YouTube and that kind of thing. But that race in particular, like you mentioned, the dust up between Bobby Allison and Richard Petty. Yeah, they were fierce competitors, but they were also good friends, and there was really no love lost in that instance. Can tell me a little bit about that one. You remember that very clearly. You know, tell the listeners about you know that race and kind of what led up to it, and you know the the fallout, if you will, immediately after the race. You know, on pit road and in victory lane. Well, you know, to put it kind of in perspective, I was uh the first year that I was uh, introduced to the NASCAR was that year, actually April of April 16th, 1972. I saw my first race. I was only 11 at the time, but this happened later in that year. And, and that particular year, it was between Richard Petty, Bobby Allison for the championship. That year, Bobby was driving a Chevrolet for Junior Johnson. Petty was, of course, with Petty Enterprises. And uh, but now a year, you sort of have to go back a year or two prior to that. Bobby was running uh, his own Dodge, some with Mario Rossi, but also his own Dodge. And you have to keep in mind that Petty Enterprises was the basically the arm of Chrysler. Uh, anytime that they, of course, needed anything uh, distributed to uh, any of the other race teams, you'd have to go through Petty Enterprises. Right. Well, right. it was kind of a psychological thing because prior to running for Junior Johnson in 72, Bobby was running a Dodge. So this this was sort of a, you know, kind of a festering thing, if you will, leading up to 72. This is why I have to tell you this little bit of the story. Mm-hmm. It had all culminated at basically at, at the race at North Wilkesboro uh, but it kind of went back to 70, 71, not in that, in that era, because you see anytime that Bobby needed engine parts, because he was running a Dodge some of that time, he needed to go through Petty Enterprises. Right, so, right. Okay, so he goes and gets the, he orders these parts to build his engine. And a lot of times when you're a racer, you're, you're building your engines, you know, late at night, put the engine in, leave the next morning kind of thing to go to where the, you you're going to Rockingham or, or uh, wherever you're racing, Wilkesboro, Richmond, wherever the case may be. Well, he'd open the box, and you know you're running an eight-cylinder engine. Well, there'll only be seven pistons, that kind of thing. Right. And they, you know that was their psychological way of saying we're going to beat you. <laughs> so, so you know this this is the kind of thing that was going on. So they they were competitors, and it wasn't Bobby didn't feel like it was very fair to have to get his engine parts from a competitor, but that was the only door he had to get those things. All right, so leading into 72, he's driving for Junior, and they're neck and neck. He would, either Richard would win, Bobby would win, and Bobby won 10 races that year for Junior. Right. They get to Wilkesboro, and again, they're beating and banging each other all year long. Well, seven laps to go into this race at Wilkesboro, the 
they are into each other pretty much every lap. And this is what I was thinking about at the Bristol race this past weekend. I'm sitting in the press box and I'm watching this thing between Elliot and Harvick. And I knew it wasn't going to get as heated as it was at Wilkesboro that day, but I, it just came to mind. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, these two cars, Petty and Allison, they are beating and banging each other to the point where there's smoke inside and outside the cars. They're, they're wailing on each other. And they're going lap by lap and by the, by two laps to go, I mean, their cars are just what somebody's going to come back with only the steering wheel, basically. Okay, <laughs> this, this is kind of where we're at here. Right. So as, as it turns out, Petty does win the race. And uh, partly because there was a guy by the name of Vic Parsons, who was not related to Benny Parsons or, uh, Phil Parsons, but his name was Parsons, and he sort of Petty used him as a pick to get around Bobby with two to go, and he ends up winning the race. Well, they go to Victory Lane, and there's a huge Bobby Allison camp of fans and a huge camp of Richard Petty fans. Somehow or another, there was a Bobby Allison fan that got into Victory Lane. It was is basically attacking Richard, and I don't know what his choice of beverages were that day, but. <laughs> He was a bit out of control, and Maurice Petty, Richard Petty's brother, who built the engine for Richard, cold cocked him, and you know they took him out of victory lane. This it got out of hand. It was all just a just a short short fuse away from being a riot. It was very out of control, and uh, fortunately we didn't see that Saturday night. But this is the kind. It wasn't just a discussion. This this has gotten very very out of hand, and. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that you would see at some of these short track races back in the 70s, away from television, away from, you know, we had the regular newspaper guys like myself and yourself, but a way different era than what we have today. You didn't have social media, you didn't have Twitter, you didn't have somebody right on top of you with a cell phone videotaping the whole thing like we do today. Right. It did get way out of hand. Now, I can tell you today that Bobby Allison and Richard Petty are great friends. And away from that heat of the moment, they were good friends then. I've seen photos from 1972 of them greeting fans and being together and that sort of thing. But but fans need to understand that, you know, after 490 laps of a hot afternoon on a Sunday, and you're beating and banging. And back in those days, you didn't have $6 million being paid to the driver and the big sponsorships and the motor homes and the jets. You didn't have that. A lot of times the drivers would, you know, they would drive the, the, the transporter to the track. They would work on the race car. They would drive 500 miles. Then a lot of times in Bobby's case and Richard's case, and praise, praise them for doing it, they'd sit there and sign autographs till dark. Mm-hmm. And then they would get in the transporter themselves and drive it back to Alabama or drive it back to Level Cross. It was a much, much different era than what we are seeing today. But yeah, they and the money they were being paid in those days was not like it is today. So they had to beat and bang and scratch for every lap they completed. But that particular day, I just remember, I didn't see it in person. I wasn't there. But I've seen photos and I've read articles of the races. They ran 29 races that year. And of all the races they ran, that had to be the most heated 
that I, I know of that particular year. And wow, you talk about two guys not only getting into it nose to nose, but they got into it fender to fender. <laughs> was, man, I'm telling you what, that they were fighting for every inch there at Wilkesboro. I, I, I've got to ask you this. You know, when you look back at a race like that, and, you know, we both said already that these guys were friends. They are friends till to this day. Very good friends. Is there any duo, if you will, today that you could draw a comparison between them and another driver of today with an Allison versus Petty back in 72? I mean, <clears throat> are there two guys that are really good friends off the track but on the track, they want to put each other into the wall. I mean, is there anything, <laughs> any, kind of, any kind of comparison of what, who today would be the equivalent of the Petty and Bobby Allison from 72? I mean, I, I, I got to really think about that for a second because they're, I mean, you know, it, it, they, they love you. I'm, I say this respectfully. They love each other as friends. They really do. Um, and... But when it comes down to winning races, I mean, there's something that happens to these guys uh, behind the wheel because that's all they know how to do. You know, that's all they grew up knowing how to do. They don't want to hurt each other. Don't get me wrong. They wouldn't want to do that ever. But I mean, it, when it comes down to rubbing some fenders and making sure that they are doing their best for themselves and for their race teams, that's what they get paid for. You know, I, I I, I got to think about that for a second, but the two, I guess the two that really, gosh, that's, that's a tough question. I want to say right off the top of my head, I want to say maybe, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why this comes to mind. I want to say maybe Keselowski and Truex, maybe. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I, I think they're, I think they're good friends off the track. I think they're all are good friends off the track. I mean, I know they do things when they can. Uh, I, mean, I know they socialize when they can. They see each other to tracks when they can. Um, you know, and and this is kind of a, a, kind of a strange thing. I mean, as far as a 1960s driver that reminds me of a today driver would be Rex White, and Justin Algar. I don't, I mean, you, you see that, I mean, just because of the driving styles. Right, right, right. The way they conduct themselves in front of the media. You know, Rex was a guy that he didn't mind getting in front of a microphone back in the 60s. And some were very, very shy. They didn't yes. want to get there. And I even, you know, Firebrob Roberts was okay about it, but he was one of the first that would be okay with it. But a lot of drivers back in that day would run from a microphone. They didn't, they didn't want to be on the radio or TV or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the most shy drivers that hated being in front of a microphone was Bobby Isaac. Yep. Yep. He hated it. He just, he would run from one. Um, you know, some of them, I know that, you know, Pierce, David Pearson was not crazy about it, but he would do it. Um, Ned Jarrett was good. And, in front of a microphone and camera. Of course, he went on to become a great broadcaster later when his career ended in 65. Um, but yeah, as far as drivers today that, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a Richard Petty, Bobby Allison type, uh, you know, somebody, but Martin's really good as far as interviews go. We talked to him at, prior to 
the race at Bristol. He's very comfortable talking in front of, you know, microphones, tele, uh, TV cameras, that kind of thing. A great interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I enjoy talking to those guys, too. I mean, they when you talk to these guys like Chase Elliott and, and Kyle Larson, they what they do for fans that don't realize, they do something called a bullpen. I'm sure you've been involved in some of that where they bring them out to the media and there's just a bank of cameras and microphones and it's pretty much a free for all. You can ask them anything you want to ask them. They'll either answer you or they won't answer you, (laughs) you know? And, uh, but it's, it's fun to talk to them. You can, they'll either give you good answers or they'll clam up and they won't talk to you. So exactly, exactly. You know, and that's, it's oftentimes, you know, I bet you, well, we both been in this game for such a long time. And one of the, tricks I learned, and I, and I, trick may not be the right word, but um, it's ironic that we're talking about drivers who, you know, would run from the media, you know, this has been something that's been going on for 50, 60 years. Good friend of mine, his name is Jerry Cook, K-U-C, passed away yesterday. And he was the guy of all the, um, writers, editors, broadcasters that I've been around for my career, he, was, he wasn't he was exactly a mentor, but he was a good friend. And he would tell me things. And I'll never forget, this has been kind of the, the, the mantra that I've taken going forward, because he told me this really early in my career. Believe it or not, Ben, you're going to fall over probably when I tell you this. I am shy as hell. I am one of the most shyest guys you are ever going to want to meet. Doesn't seem like that because I talk, you know, very uh, openly, very bluntly. I'm, you know, I, I'm never seemingly at a loss for words. But there's a reason for that, and this is a good time for me to bring up this example of Jerry Cook because what he told me one day, we were sitting at the old Comiskey Park, and we were sitting on the uh, on the dugout, and you know, it was before the game. We were just shooting the bull. And one of the things he said to me, like I said, has stuck with me forever. He said, you know, if you want to be a good reporter, A, don't ask the same questions everybody else does. But B, more importantly, be personable. If you're shy as hell, get yourself out of that shell. Find a way to get out of it. And what he did, and this was like his trademark, if you will. And I know a lot of fans, especially those here in the Chicago area that are listening to this, uh, probably recognized the name Jerry Cook because he was basically a legend here in the broadcasting field. But one of the things, he, the, the the number one thing he taught me, and this is probably the, one of the best things I've ever learned, is he said that whenever you would go up to an athlete, be it a race car driver, baseball player, football player, what have you, if you're going to do a one-on-one if there's no other reporters around, you go up to the guy and you, and he'll say, "Yeah, what do you want?" And especially if it's a guy that you know was a known, known as a difficult interview. And Jerry had this line, and I'm and I know I'm probably dragging this out a little bit longer, but he had this line where the toughest interviews, he would go up to them and they'd say, "Yeah, what 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 do you want?" You know, and oftentimes there'd be a curse word or two in there too as well. And he just looked them in the in the eye give him kind of a little smile and says, you know, I just want to talk to you about the same old bleep that everybody else wants to talk to you about. And more often than not, it would relax those guys immediately and he would get 
great interviews. And I, I was a little hesitant to adapt that uh, kind of, you know, uh, strategy, but I tried it. And sure as hell, it worked. I mean, and it has worked for the last 30-some years for me. And, you know, the thing is, a lot of athletes, they get jaded because, let's face it, I mean, you know, even even in uh, motorsports, particularly NASCAR, there's a lot of criticism from media. And some of it, you know, may be justified, but a lot of times I don't think it really is justified. But I can see why a, a driver, you know, may be hesitant to talk to a uh, you know, a reporter, much like you were talking about the guys back in the 60s and the 70s, even into the 80s, they would run from the reporters. But, you know, if you find a way to talk to a driver or an athlete, you know, a baseball player, football player, whatever, if you can get on their same wavelength, you can get such great uh, responses back from them that, that other reporters are going to say, geez, how did you pull that out of them? And that kind of goes along with what you're doing, Ben, and what I'm doing of late is, you know, you're the, obviously the historian, you know, the, the Lifetime in NASCAR has been a great podcast. I do a lot of where are they now stories. And again, it's, you know, you, you call up a guy and, you know, maybe he hasn't been heard from for the last 20 years. But you know what? When you start talking to them, it's like the past has gone away. They're like right back there at, you know, places like Bristol or Darlington or what have you. And they come up with such great answers, and fans just eat that stuff up. So I, I certainly get what you're saying about uh, about that. And, you know, even today, there are still, I mean, the drivers have to be more savvy. There's no question about it because of all the sponsorship and everything like that. But, you know, there are still some out there that don't want to talk to the reporters or, you know, will give you, you know, uh, kind of like the old uh, Kyle Bush, Richard, um, what was the guy from the Seahawks who said, I have to be here because I'll, or else I'll get fined, you know, that kind of thing. So, but, you know, that's kind of where, where I'm leading into this is, you know, one of the guys that you you mentioned about the past, you know, you, every week, you know, on, on uh, a lifetime in NASCAR, you talk about drivers of the week. And you mentioned the guy that you wanted to talk about this week, and that's Marvin Panch. Now, Marvin, obviously, long before a lot of us, you know, uh, you know, he he was, you know, among the early pioneers, if you will, of the sport. But he also was one of the best drivers out there. He was a money guy. I mean, you know, he when the when the pressure was on, he was typically at his game. He was also, from what I remember, he was also kind of shy. I, I've only I only had a couple of interactions with him, you know, many years ago, but. Um, he was kind of a shy guy, but eventually he got over that, that shyness. But, you know, because he's the driver of the week that we want to talk about, you remember him very well. You had a lot of interaction with him. Tell us, especially the fans that didn't know who Marvin Panch was, tell us why he was not only a great race car driver, but he was a great person to talk to as well. Yeah, he sure was. And he was a very down to earth, uh, sort of guy. He was a winning race car driver. He won the 1961 Daytona 500, and I guess he's probably best known for driving for the Wood Brothers, mm -hmm. which is, I can't tell you how great the Wood Brothers are, and that's another, that's a team and family we could get into, probably do a whole podcast on that group of folks, but just up from Stewart, Virginia, but yeah, he, um, he was, um, he was from uh, Wisconsin, came down, and you know, he did some stuff, some driving, some short track stuff up in Wisconsin. And, and like so many other drivers, got the NASCAR bug and came down in the early 50s. But 
just you know got linked up with uh, like I say the Wood Brothers and one, but I guess a story that a lot of people don't realize is uh, for prior to the nineteen sixty three Daytona five hundred, he was testing a Maserati at Daytona. I remember that, and, right? Yeah, and the car got out got out from under him, he flipped, and was rather badly burned, and obviously couldn't run the sixty three Daytona five hundred. This is two years after he won the race. And of course, uh, Tiny Lund, who wasn't very tiny at all, he was about <laughs> six, five, about six five, and <clears throat> excuse me, about uh, oh, I don't know, two sixty or seventy, and big old boy. And somebody, Buddy Baker, had a great deal of respect for because, you know, Tiny, if you made Tiny mad, uh, he would he'd let you know how how mad he could get. <laughs> and so, uh, matter of fact, Buddy said one time, he said. Tiny hit me so hard that my left shoe come untied. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Buddy was Buddy. That's another another area we could get into. But anyway, back to Marvin. He just a really really nice guy. He lived in Daytona Beach for many many years. And uh, so back to the back to the Marvin or the uh, Tiny Lund story. As it turned out, Marvin in the hospital in his hospital bed said, "I'd like for you to put Marvin." or excuse me, tiny in the car for the 600 or 500 and uh, to replace me in the car because I can't drive. And as it turns out, uh, Tiny Lund wins the 63 Daytona 500. One of those great Cinderella stories. Right. But um, anyways, uh, Marvin won 17 Cup Series races uh, during his career and uh, uh, retired from, from racing in the mid-60s and just just a super nice guy and sadly his son uh uh also became uh, a race car driver and and lost his life in a in an airplane crash in 1985 but uh, wow. yeah just um just a super yeah just super nice person to be around and uh, just a really great interview at the times i sat down with him and just I mean, when we lost him in 2015, uh, he, he passed away at the age of 89, Marvin did. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, just a super, super good guy. And and uh, he won the 1961 Daytona 500, the 66 World 600. And like I say, won uh, 17, 17 races. So, yeah. Well, you know, you I, I got to interject this story. And I think... It was 2006, maybe 2007. And I, I, I'm pretty sure you were with us on this one. NASCAR, um, they did this for a couple of years, actually, uh, back then. Um, they had a, um, where was it at? It was the Daytona Beach, I think it was the convention center. I'm pretty sure that's where it was at. Um, they would bring in a lot of the, you know, past heroes of the sport and they would talk to the media, and then fans would get a chance to interact with them. This was like, I don't know, maybe three, four, five days before the Daytona 500 that, you know, of each of those years. But there was one year in particular, and I, I, I want to say it was 2006 or 2007. Um, NASCAR did a tour of all the uh, legendary spots in Daytona. Now, a lot of them were gone at that point. I mean, you know, but... You know, we saw where Smokey Unix's garage was. I mean, we, 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 you know, where the Skyline Motel or hotel still is, obviously. But, um, you know, it was really 
interesting. And what really made it interesting, Ben, and I, again, I'm pretty sure you were on that. I have a pretty good memory about these things. Um, you know, uh, we had Junior Johnson there. Marvin Panch was on there. Um, you know, and the, the they were there was probably about maybe seven or eight old timers that were you know on that ride, and I was maybe I don't know maybe three four rows behind Junior Johnson, and I I I want to say Marvin was sitting next to him. Maybe he might have been across the way. I, I he was in close proximity to him, but I started hearing you know these guys talking about. Well, I remember back in, you know, so-and-so year, or, hey, do you remember this race? I mean, I find that stuff so fascinating to listen to. I mean, it, it, it not only helps me appreciate the history of the sport, but these were living legends. Bobby Ellison was on that bus, now I think about it, too. He was on that bus as well. Um, there were, there were so, Richard, I don't believe was on Richard. Maybe, maybe he might have been. But anyway, the point is that, you know, Marvin Panch was on there, and I do remember him talking to Junior. I remember him talking to the other guys. And, you know, it's like you're a fly on the wall. You know, you're you're listening to these guys, and you feel like, hey, maybe I wasn't even born then, but I could relate to what they went through. I would, you know, I could see myself being at a track and what they did, you know, what, what made those races special. And I just ate that stuff up. And a lot of fans, I'm sure, were the same way. Mar Marvin... You know, even though he was shy, I do recall, though, that he, A, he always, always, always had time for fans. I mean, you know, even even when he was older, you know, you know, getting, you know, on into 70s and 80s, you know, if he was around fans, you know, he would be there until, you know, the last autograph was signed or, you know, he'd he'd spend time with you talking. A lot of drivers, you know, and, and I'm not going to mention any names of today's drivers, but... There's a lot of drivers that will just, you know, blow right past you. They'll ignore you. They won't, you know, even if you're a fan of theirs, they just don't have time for you. And that's one thing that Marvin, from, you know, what I, what I do remember of him was that he, he stood out in that regard. He always, you know, gave fans his time. And, you know, once, especially once you're retired, you know, it's very easy for fans to forget about drivers, but Marvin was never forgotten. I mean, when he died, like you said, back in, what was it, 15 or 16, whatever it was. Um, yeah, he, he, I mean, a lot of people came out not only to remember him, but just, you know, the stories about him. Uh, there were just some great, great stories about the personality, the person, not so much the racer, but the, I mean, and, and not to not to discount him as a racer, but it's just how good of a guy he was. He was really one of the last of the really, really good guys of that era. Yeah, well, yeah, he was, and you know, and and like I said before, his son uh, Richie Panch was a driver in NASCAR for several years to try right. to make his start. And as I mentioned, sadly, in 1985, uh, he was in in an airplane crash that occurred after leaving the 1985 Southern 500, the year that Bill Elliott won the Winston Million. And he was, uh, Richie was, I believe, in that race and they, they left. And there was a lot of weather around the 85 uh, Southern 500. I remember they had thunderstorms that day. And mm -hmm. sadly, we lost Richie to a private airplane crash as he left the racetrack. But uh, yeah, Marvin, uh, he, the thing I remember most about him was, you're right, he was very quiet, but just very well respected among those in the garage. And he was a great racer, too. I mean, he won 17 times, 126 top 10s during his career. 
and um, just he did, had some success mostly on the super speedways. Um, could drive that that the heck out of a race car, obviously because you know the Wood Brothers had a lot of respect for him and put him in their Fords in the '60s. His last bit or last start was in 1966, I think, in the World 600 and. You know, just in that era, though, you got to remember that, uh, you know, Ned Jarrett, Junior Johnson, Marvin Panch, they they retired in the mid-60s, um, you know, they partly because the cars, I mean, I've heard Ned say this, that the cars were safe, but they just didn't feel, after Fireball passed away, they just didn't feel like they they wanted to maybe stay in the cars on the super speedways. That's a nice way to put it. They... Mm -hmm. They still required, they needed a lot more safety put in the cars. And, um, you know, the death of Fireball in 1964 in May at Charlotte, I think made some of those drivers really think about, did they want to continue on the super speedways? There was a lot more that needed to be done. I know Ned really, that, that really made him think about it. Mm -hmm. and, and Fred Lorenzen also, you know, Fred, got out of the car in 67. Right, right. And, you know, and Fred told me every time I talked with him after that, he, he made a mistake. He wished he had stayed in the car. He came back, Fred Lorenzen did, in 1971, 72, and never could really put together a winning combination again. But, uh, yeah, so a lot of those top drivers in the mid-60s, some stayed, like Bobby Allison, Buddy Baker, of course, the uh, Kill Yarborough, Richard Petty, of course, but some did step away. And and Marvin, I think, was one of those that did a little soul searching and decided it might be best to step away at, at that era. But uh yeah, Marvin, I you know, I didn't I wasn't as close of friends with, with Marvin as I am, say Bobby Allison and say Daryl and and some of those of the of the seventies era. But uh yeah, just a just a fine person. I mean, I just really had a lot of respect for for Marvin and all that he accomplished on the track, but more so what he accomplished off of it because he, again, like you said, and there was a lot of guys in that era too that that had a vast amount of respect for the race fans. I'm not saying the guys today don't, but their schedules are a lot more tedious than what the guys were back then. You know, the thing about that I remember most when I started writing about NASCAR in 83 I had drivers come up to me, Ricky Rudd, Sterling Marlin, Bobby, a bunch of them say, hey, I got a story idea for you. I mean, can you imagine that happening <laughs> yeah, today? <right. laughs> I mean, that's, you know, hey, I've got a great idea I want you to think about for a feature. It's like, really? You know, seriously? I mean, I had, I, I had people come ask me that. But, you know, we were talking earlier about the guys that were avoiding the microphones and avoiding the cameras. I'll tell you why that happened. A lot of those guys... I mean, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but they they weren't as highly educated as the guys today. They really weren't. They just weren't. They were shy, especially right. Bobby Isaac. Right, right. You know, Bobby Isaac wasn't very high. He's a great race driver, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to Bobby, but he just wasn't very highly educated, mm -hmm. uh, wasn't very um, well-spoken. Uh, and some of those guys weren't, and that's what Fireball was so good at. He was probably head of the list as far as being able to, con, you know, sit in front of a corporate group of people and try to uh, 
you know, attract a sponsor like, say, you know, a, a major corporate sponsor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, and I heard Dale Earnhardt tell me himself that his dad, Ralph, probably would have done better as a racer had he had the skill to sit in a corporate setting and, and attract sponsorship. But his dad was not good at it. He, he wasn't as, as educated as he needed to be. So a lot of those drivers in the 60s just weren't capable of doing that kind of thing, where Fireball was probably the best right, right. at it, you know, and he... His plans, a matter of fact, what was so ironic about Fireball was he was planning, he he was going to announce after the 600 that he sadly was burned so badly in that he was going to retire. Right, I remember that. Right, right, right. And and he had already signed a deal with Falstaff Beer that he was going to be like a public relations representative and they were going to pay him a lot of money. Yep. to step out of the race car and be that and there and, and ironically there is a book that fireball kept from 1950 to 1964 of all the winnings that he made all the money he spent in racing and sadly that there's a notation in that book and the nascar hall of fame has it or it might have been returned to its owner that on may 26 1964 there's a notation, but it's not filled. You know, in other words, mm-hmm. he was going to fill in where what right. money he was to be have made that day. Right. And he obviously didn't get a chance to fill in that last notation. It's kind of sad, but uh, right. yeah. So a lot of lot of uh, drivers in that era loved the 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 fans and loved to be around them. But there's a lot of shy guys too that didn't just like I said they they. They hid from the microphones because they didn't feel confident in themselves. It's kind of odd. They they felt comfortable driving at 180 miles an hour, but they didn't <laughs> feel comfortable sitting in front of a microphone. That's kind of but but you know that you know you and I are maybe a little bit the same. I mean, if you had to sit in front of a a group of uh, five thousand people in a room and another million or two on television, it's a little unnerving. I've done it. It's right. you, know, you got to pace the floor a little bit on those. It's a little intimidating. You're right. You're right. I, I want to go back to Marvin for a second, though. You raised a really interesting point. When he had that crash in '63 and he got burned so badly, he he never really was. I mean, he was still a good driver, but he wasn't as good as he had been prior to that wreck. And to me, that seemed to hasten his last season was in uh, 66, like you said. And like you said, also, there were a lot of drivers in that time frame, 64, 65, 66, 67, that got out of racing because of what happened to Marvin, what happened to Fireball. Was there a direct or even an indirect connection between what happened to Fireball that maybe was like the final thing that Marvin says, I'm only going to give this another year or two and I'm out of here too as well. I think so. Whether it be spoken or unspoken, I think that when you are traving uh, in say 165 miles an hour around Charlotte and see, that's what's interesting today. You can go to a driving school and you can get up to 160, 165 and get a certificate afterward and say, thanks for coming to the school. Back in those days, 160, 165 was pretty fast. And those cars, they were safe. And Holman Moody built a lot of the Fords, all the Fords turnkey 
and they were safe. Don't get me wrong, but that was the that was the ultimate safe for a car in that era. But it still wasn't to today's standards. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and and I think when you're a a top driving a Jack Smith, Dale, I mean Ned Jarrett, uh, Marvin Panch, Fred Lorenzen, you know, you're top of the game, and you're you're putting yourself out there at 165 in one of those cars. Um, and something like that happens every lap that you turn. I imagine every time he went to Daytona and every time Marvin went through that turn, it had to play on his mind. It had to. Right. And, uh, yeah. And so, yeah. And that was, don't get me wrong. I think the cars they ran were the safest they could be, but, but going back to 63, when he crashed, they didn't have driver suits then. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they had to take whatever coveralls they had and they hung them on the fence and put this chemical on them, you know, prior in 64 is when they really started mandating a driver's suit. Mm-hmm. And in, in Fireball's case, he had, it was asthmatic, so he couldn't have, he couldn't wear one of those suits. And he basically went into the car wearing a cotton suit. Oh, wow. so I did not know that. that. Was the re- had he been able to wear a fireproof suit, yeah, he he uh, he might could have survived the the crash. I but the day know. he was interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, he could he was he had asthma really bad and he couldn't uh, he couldn't tolerate this chemical that they put on the suits prior to those suits being worn. So after that, uh, they developed a fireproof suit, and those suits back in gave you 12, 15 seconds. They didn't give you a lot of time. Right. So, um, yeah. And so back to 63, Marvin wasn't wearing a fireproof suit. So this was an era when you were driving race cars with regular gas tanks. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you know what I mean? There's, I mean, they had fire extinguishers, but not like today, where today yeah. you've got 9, 10, 12 fire extinguishers with a push of a button. You got fire extinguisher coming at you at all sides. Back then it was a fire extinguisher you'd buy at a local hardware store right exactly exactly right yeah so i had to answer your question sorry to be so long-winded but but it yeah to answer your question it had to play on their minds the cars they had were safe as safe as they could be for that era they weren't they weren't great ben we're we're coming up on an hour and i wanted to ask you one more question before we put this one in the books and this is kind of going off one of the questions uh, that you suggested uh you know in your email to me you know to me, a lot of NASCAR's um, old school drivers ended with Tony Stewart, um, Jeff Gordon, even to a certain extent, Dale Jr. But there are still a few guys, in my opinion, that are still old school that, you know, they're great today, but they would have been great back in the day as well. When you know, if you had them go against a a Pearson or a Yarborough or a Petty or you know uh, a Junior Johnson or whomever, when you look at today's crop of drivers, there's really two guys, in my opinion, that stand out as old school drivers that just would trans. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, transform so readily from today to if they were in a time machine they'd be great 50 years earlier two guys that i that come to my mind immediately are ryan newman and the young guy kyle bush 
Would you agree with that, or are there any other guys that you know maybe have still continued to you know hold the baton? Because like I said, you know when when Stewart got out of it, when Jeff especially got out of it, that was it as far as I was concerned in terms of old school style drivers. But you still got you know like I said, you got a Newman, you've got a um, uh, a Kyle Busch. Um, to an extent, you can also put Kurt Busch in that category too as well. But you know maybe even a Harvick. But I mean, to you, who who is the closest or maybe two one one or two closest drivers to old school racers today that could have been stars back in the day you know what if they raced against you know the legends back then as well too well i'll tell you one one that comes to mind and i say this because i believe he could adapt to anything and i think those cars back in the 60s and 70s as we just talked about they had the big steering wheels they were really big long wide cars that had again the big steering wheels that as i say you'd have to turn them halfway to georgia to get them <laughs> to the turns <laughs> right but I, I go back to kyle larson i think you know kyle could i've said it on the show before kyle larson could drive a washing machine if it had if they had wheels <laughs> he's just adaptable to anything he could strap himself into and yeah he's a young guy but but put him in he's I've said it before, BA, Bobby Allison could do the same. He would get in people's cars, open wheel cars and Trans Am cars and stuff that had the names of other drivers on, on the roof lines and run them faster and make those drivers mad at him because he <laughs> run them faster. Kyle's the same way. If you gave him a 1976 Chevy Laguna and said, drive it, give him a couple hours or an hour and he would drive it and he could do well in it. I fully believe that. And he's just got that special, special talent. Uh, he's, he's kind of, he's, you'd have to make a seat for him, <laughs> fit him because those seats were bigger, right. but those steering wheels, they'd make those things so big because they knew you had to turn them so far with today's wheels are, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just tear, barely turn them. Right. Those you had to turn them, no, I'll, I'll leave you with this. There's a videotape, and I'm sure you've seen it. Hill Yarborough going through the turns at Darlington in 1976 or seven, and it, it, he's just all over the place, and he's yep. bouncing all over the place, and it's like, here I am, turn one, two, 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 three, you know, and he's only, he's alluding to the fact this is like the best thing I've ever driven here, and I, I'm thinking I'd hate to see you the worst thing you've ever driven. <laughs> Exactly. You, you've seen the video, I'm sure, but yeah. it's um, nothing like we have today where they're just so smooth and they barely turn the wheel and, you know, they're strapped in tight and they got all this stuff around them. Like Kale's just thought, you know, you know, that was normal back then. Right. And right. I think, I think Kyle Larson could just adapt to anything he drives. And that's yeah. my, that's the guy. I just, he's really good. Well, you know, to, to follow it up, um, you make a lot of good points, and I guess I didn't really connect Larson, if you will, to the guys of old, but you were so spot on on that. But, you know, another thing about Larson that a lot of people don't seem to know about, they know about this from a guy like Harvick, they know about the guy like uh, Kyle and Kurt Busch, is these guys, and Dale Jr. also was a real big one in this they were students of the past, of past racing, of past NASCAR years and past drivers. Kyle Larson, I, I completely, totally forgot about. 
he is one of those guys still. I mean, I remember uh, there's been countless times I've interviewed him where he'll say, well, yeah, I was watching, you know, such and such a race back from 70 or 80 or 60 or what have you. You know, he 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 takes notes mentally. And even though the cars were totally different back then and the racing was totally different, the tracks were totally different, he still would be able to get something out of it. You know, he'd still be able to, uh, you know, appreciate it. And I think that also has helped him become not only the great driver he is, but the versatile driver he is. Because, you know, uh, like you were saying about the dishwasher, I go back to that line in Smokey and the Bandit where Burt Reynolds says to Jerry Reed, uh, or no, Jerry Reed says, you can't drive that forklift. And, and Burt Reynolds says, oh, hell, I can drive any forking thing out there, you know? So, <laughs> one of my favorite lines in that movie, I just saw it a couple of weeks ago again, but, you know, I mean. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jerry, but you know what, when he drives his sprint cars, on dirt and they're they're pretty much all over the place and then he gets in a cup car which when he's strapped in so tight to one of those things it's like well i can do this because i just got out of a, a you know a sprint car i mean you don't, you, don't, you understand my point yes. it's like yes. the I, and then i go back to bristol when he was going three wide all over the place and putting the car where it wouldn't fit yep he's like well i do this all the time this is no big deal <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, it's like Larson, you know, when he's in a sprint car and then he goes and transitions to a cup car, it's like going from um, maybe like an AMC Pacer to a Cadillac Eldorado, you know, that kind of thing. So, but, but I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, you know, obviously I'm an older guy, you're an older guy, but I just yes. so appreciate hearing about the, the old days and especially well, not, I shouldn't say especially. I mean, I love hearing about the old days, you know, especially. But I also really like when I hear drivers like a Kyle Larson or a, a Kyle Bush or Dale Jr. or or whomever who like to refer back to them. I mean, you know, Jr. has that uh, that TV show. What is it? Uh, Lost Racetracks or whatever it is. Um, right. I mean, those things. That kind of stuff is just people just love that. You know, the the listeners, the viewers, the readers, what have you. They just love that kind of thing and. I, I hope to God that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you know, Kyle Larson may or may not be around here 10 years from now. He may be retired. Kyle Bush may be retired. But I'd like to think that the next generation of drivers, the guys that are maybe not even in NASCAR right now, that are, you know, maybe just, you know, racing around in, you know, in grassroots racing, they will appreciate that history of NASCAR because I would hate to see that history just totally be gone and you know i mean when a lot of the older fans are going to pass away i would like to think that they have passed on their appreciation of the sport of the past drivers to their you know children and their children's children and you know keep this thing going because you know nascar is is to me probably the best or one of the best sports as a whole when it comes to never forgetting about the past, where they came from, their roots. I mean, you know, you can't talk about NASCAR's development without talking about, you know, the 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 bootlegging and, and the running and that kind of thing. And that's just such a colorful history that I just so appreciate so much. Well, I totally agree with you. We got so much to talk about, you know. And, and very quickly, last last point here: when I've written ten books about NASCAR, and every time I write one that you talk about when you were talking about the, the touring in Daytona with all these old older guys that that was such a thrill to talk to and listen to those stories. 
every time you write a book, you, you see it published and then you say, then you talk to him again. And so well, why didn't you tell me that story? Tell <laughs> right. that, story? that was a better story than what you told me the first time. There's so many of these great stories. We got to get them written down. And, and um, it's just so much fun to talk to them. You know, we've lost Junior Johnson and we've lost Marvin and we've lost so many of these guys. And it's just, I don't know. We, we just, I love, like you, I love the history of this stuff. We could talk hours and hours yep. about all the funny stuff that we, so yeah, we're so appreciative of anybody that's listening to our lifetime of NASCAR. We got so many great stories and it's a privilege to have you join us and it's going to be fun doing this. I I'm love doing go. this with you. I have enjoyed this hour so much. You have no idea. And looking forward to, you know, making this you know, regular weekly thing with you. And I mean, right. I, I love, you know, listening to you because, you know, as I've told you off the air, you know, my history of the sport, ironically enough, the first, um, I'm trying to remember, it was the first race. I think it was the first ever NASCAR race that I actually attended as a reporter couldn't get much bigger than this. Uh, 1988, Phoenix Raceway, and Alan Kowicki wins. And I was there, and I'll never forget how he did the Polish victory lap. I mean, that track back then, the the um, the um, press box was so old. And with all without you know with with all due respect to the folks at Phoenix Raceway today, that that race, I mean that uh, media center, I mean. There was dust everywhere. There was cigarette butts everywhere. I mean, but when I was there, and I was actually coming, I can't, I can't remember if I was either going back. I think I was coming back from the NHRA's final season uh, race um, the week before, and then I wound up going to Phoenix on the way back home to Chicago. And I'll never forget that race because – when they brought Kowicki up to the press, you know, to the media center, and again, with all the, the dust and cigarette butts and all that stuff, um, we forged a, a relationship. And, you know, I got a chance to talk to him quite a bit. You know, we, we shared a Polish heritage. He's from Milwaukee. I'm from Chicago. We had, you know, a great, great heritage there. But it's that kind of thing that, you know, like you mentioned about Marvin Panch being from Wisconsin. I mean, we, we have got so many possibilities we can talk about, you know, going forward here. I mean, we can do this for the next 10 years and never run out of topics, you know. So no, We can't run out of things to talk about. No. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Ben, listen, thank you ever so much for taking the time. Thank you very much for the warm welcome of having me come join the Lifetime in NASCAR. Look forward to talking with you next week. And uh, everyone, thanks ever so much for tuning into Lifetime in NASCAR. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll catch you next week right here on the Lifetime in NASCAR.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.